Uh, Pastor Joe was talking about unity, that, that psalm, and, and oil running down the beard of Aaron. And it's such a strange way of saying something is good. Right? It's like, man, it's so good. It reminds me of like oil running down some random guy's beard. And it's like, okay, that's, that's kind of weird. And so I've heard it, you know, one, one person theorized that, uh, well, that, that speaks of the ordination of a priest into, into the service of God. And they would pour oil on the priest, and that represented God's blessing, His Holy Spirit, and the man being set apart to the work of God. And so as God is moving in the land and more and more people are worshiping God and it necessitates more and more priests to be brought into the ministry, that really speaks of God's blessing on the land as people are pouring their hearts out to God. More and more men are being uh, ordained into the ministry and and so that's kind of the idea there. Uh, When you talk about um, the oil running down Aaron's beard, it speaks to the fact that God's blessing is on the land and that uh, people are worshiping God and that ministers are being raised up and it's a glorious thing. So, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> Alright, so Acts chapter 25, if you would turn there with me. We're going to cover two chapters today. And the first chapter that we're going to look at, chapter 25, it really just kind of sets up the scene for 26. So I'm going to try to move rather quickly through 25. There may be uh, just you know, a lot of facts and kind of even dry perhaps, but I really want to focus in on chapter 26. It's very powerful, and that's where I believe that God will especially bless us and, and meet with us today in, in that text. So uh, allow me to pray for us. God, we love You, and it's such a, an honor and a joy to come together in this place with, with our family and to celebrate, to celebrate the Gospel, to celebrate the cross, the resurrection, to celebrate Your great love with which You have loved us by sending Your Son to die for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. And we worship You, Lord. We honor You in this place. And I thank You that You have been moving mightily as we have been praising You through music and singing. But I pray now, God, as we open Your Word and as we seek to to learn more about You and to hear from You, God, that You would continue to move in this place. I pray that You would move in our hearts, God. That You would move in our minds. That You would move in our lives. And that we would come to know You in a greater way, God. And above all, You would be honored and that You would be glorified. So have Your way in this place today. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Before we get into it, as I've already mentioned many times over, the book of Acts is about a 30-year period of early church history. We have the Gospels, which cover roughly three, three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's where it really focuses in on, predominantly. And then Acts picks up where the Gospels leave off. As Christ ascends into heaven and He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The, the twelve disciples, the apostles of Christ minus Judas... They go out in power, and they go out and they start planting churches. And that's really the, the idea of the book of Acts. It's recording for us how the church was born and how it spread the way that it did. And so, obviously, there's a lot that's not in here, but it's just some of the main, some of the main things that happened during that time. 
In the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter is the main, the main player there. And there's a lot happening in Jerusalem. So Jesus ascends to the Father. The Holy Spirit comes down. The church is born. Peter preaches this fire message in Acts chapter 2. And thousands of people come to Christ. But ministry is mainly happening there in Jerusalem. And Jesus said that, that it was to go all around the world. Well, in chapter 10, the gospel goes from the Jews to non-Jews, to Gentiles, to those who, who did not worship God in Judaism. And that was a major moment in church history. Well, in chapter 13, it shifts and Paul becomes the main character for the rest of the book. And so when we first meet the guy, his name is Saul. And we'll talk more about this as we get into the message. But his name was Saul of Tarsus. And he was a Pharisee, and he hated the Christians. He thought that it was a heretical uh, group and that it was blasphemous, and he did everything in his power to stamp out Christianity. And he was ruthless, and he was violent. He was angry. And, and we'll talk more about that as we get into it because he's going to be giving his testimony today in the text that we're in. Well, we know that he came to Christ. It was a radical conversion. In chapters 13 through 20 of Acts, recount for us how Paul began to travel all around and to preach the gospel and plant churches amongst the Gentiles. So he went out of Jerusalem and all around uh, Asia and Macedonia, down into Greece, and eventually over to Rome. And so 13 to 20 recounts that for us. Well, in chapter 21, you may recall, Paul was apprehended in the temple. He was arrested. So from chapter 21 to 28... Paul has six public hearings, six public defenses that he gives on his behalf. And that's really the context here. And this was what Jesus told him would happen. Jesus called him, he saved him, he commissioned him into ministry. And he said, you're going to be a witness. You're going to be my witness to kings and to Gentiles, to rulers. Uh, and, and that is what is happening. So now he is incarcerated and he's being taken from place to place and he's He's defending himself, he's giving his testimony, and truly he is being a witness to Christ, to rulers and to kings. And that's what we're going to see today as he gives his testimony to King Agrippa and Festus. And so today we're looking at the fourth and fifth public hearings of Paul. And we'll have one more sermon in Acts, we'll do chapters 27 and 28, and then we'll be done with the book of Acts. So we've been in this same context for some time now as we've been observing Paul as a, as a chosen vessel, as an instrument of God, being used for uh, the glory of God by the Lord for His purposes. It's been challenging. It's been painful. He's been beaten. He's been rejected. He's been abandoned, shipwrecked, starved, everything that you can think of. But he's been faithful, absolutely faithful. And let me just tell you something. That wasn't Paul. Paul's not a faithful man. And no more, we're not faithful people apart from the faithfulness of God. And that's, that's one of the things I think I really want to draw out of this text. As we see Paul being a faithful witness to God, as we see him being used mightily of the Lord, it's not Paul. Paul knows that he could do nothing apart from the Lord. Amen? And so as we look at this and as we see this amazing story and we see Paul being used mightily of God, I go beyond that and I see the faithfulness and the power of God working in Paul as Paul is a witness to God. Alright, so with that, pick up in chapter 25, verse 1. 
Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. Now you'll recall Felix was the governor and Paul went before Felix and Felix delayed the answer to his case and he remained incarcerated and then Felix went out and now Festus came in. So now Festus is the guy in charge. He's the one who is to to speak to Paul's situation and to basically give an answer one way or the other as to what is going to happen to him. So the Jews come back now and they say, hey, we, we uh, are asking that you would condemn this man, basically. And they want Paul to come back to Jerusalem. That's the worst thing that could happen for Paul. Well, the, the guy Festus says, well, we're not going to do that. He's not going to go back to Jerusalem. Why don't you send your people out to Caesarea and, and we'll hear, hear him out. Now, they had an ambush set in place. They were going to try to kill Paul again. This is not the first time that had happened. And now they tried it again, but once again, God thwarted that. Well, verse 6, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? All right, well, now Paul is in front of Festus and the Jews have brought those same charges against Paul that they did before Felix that he was the ringleader of this heretical sect, the Christians, and that he was a troublemaker stirring up riots and problems everywhere that he went. And that was a, a big problem for Rome. They didn't tolerate that, not even a little bit. And that he had blasphemed the temple, that he had brought a, a Gentile into the temple, which was also false. But those were the charges that they brought before Felix, and they're doing it again before Festus. And so Paul speaks to those things again and says that it's all not true, it's a lie. And then Festus says, well, hey, would you be willing to go back down to Jerusalem? And uh, we know that's what the Jews wanted because they had an ambush set in place for him. And so um, Paul knew that that was not an option. Paul knew that going back to Jerusalem, what would happen to him most assuredly, but also Paul knew where he was supposed to be going. Remember, Jesus already told him. Jesus said, just as you have been a witness for me, now you're going to go to Rome and you're going to be a witness for me. So Paul already knew where he was going. The Lord had already made that clear to him and he certainly wasn't going to go backwards. So verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you well know, very well know, for I am an offender, for I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men can accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. 
I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So Paul knew the last thing he wanted to do was be handed over to the Jews. He knew he was an innocent man. He, knew, he said, look, if I am guilty, then kill me. I will gladly give myself over to you to that end. He said, but if I'm innocent, and I am, then you can't touch me. And he said, in fact, I appeal to Caesar. So as a Roman citizen, Paul had that right. And so this is like saying, I appeal to the Supreme Court. And so he's going to the highest court possible here because he's not about to let them take him back to Jerusalem. Alright, so now a couple more characters are going to enter into the story here. So verse 13, And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left, a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me. And when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him, to them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Alright, so now King Agrippa and Bernice enter into the story. And Festus doesn't know what to do. And so he's kind of relying on Agrippa perhaps to be able to offer some, some insight, some wisdom into the case. And so um, let me read to you um, some commentary here about who, who this Agrippa is. So Herod Agrippa II, he ruled a client kingdom of the Roman Empire to the northeast of Festus's province. So he was a ruler not too far away from where Festus resided. Agrippa was known as an expert in Jewish customs and religious matters. Though he did not have jurisdiction over Paul in this case, his hearing of the matter would be most helpful to Festus. So who is this Agrippa guy? Well, his great-grandfather was the one who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. His grandfather had John the Baptist beheaded. His father was the one who had, uh, let's see, James the Apostle beheaded earlier on in the book of Acts. And now Paul stands before the next in the line to the Herods, Herod Agrippa. So it hadn't been so good, okay? All the, all the Herods up to this point were murderous men, and they went after Jesus. They had John the Baptist beheaded, and then the first uh, apostle to die in Acts was James. And he was beheaded under Herod, and now this guy comes on the scene, and Paul has to go before him. So you would think he's probably not all that encouraged by this. And then Bernice, this was Agrippa's sister. Bernice is his sister, and some secular historians say that they may have even had an incestuous relationship going on. So these were not good people. And, uh, you know, Herod didn't rule over much territory, but he had great influence and uh, you know he was of great help to Festus in this in this situation. So Festus tells him all about what's been happening, catches him up on the case, and then verse 17. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, 
but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So Festus said, look, you know, Agrippa, this, this whole thing, it's going on. I don't know what to do. The Jews came. I thought they would have some sort of a concrete charge to bring against Paul, but it was really just issues surrounding their own religion. And so I really didn't know what to do. And so verse 20, And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So he caught uh, Agrippa up on what's been happening so far. Now Agrippa said, hey, I'd like to hear this guy myself personally. And he said, all right, tomorrow we will. So now we're going to see Paul's fifth public defense. Fifth public defense. Verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews has petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. But I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write." For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges against him. So Festus is in a difficult situation. And guys, just hang, hang in there with me. I know this is just a lot of technical moving through the text, but we're, uh, we're, we're kind of getting ready to land uh, where, I'm, where I'm trying to get us. And so Festus doesn't know what to do. He's like, man, I've got to send this guy to Caesar, and I don't even know what I'm going to tell Caesar when I send him. And so it's kind of a, an embarrassing situation that Festus is in. He's like, how am I going to send a prisoner to, to Caesar and say, by the way, I don't really know why I'm sending him to you, but here he is. And so he's really hoping that Festus will be able to offer some insight into the matters of Judaism and the, thing, the charges that are being brought against Paul so that he'll be able to have something to give to Caesar. So chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore I beg you to hear me patiently. So Paul is very courteous here. He is now speaking to Agrippa. He's being very kind. And he's saying, look, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to bring this to you because I know you're an expert in the things concerning the, the, the laws and uh, the different things in Judaism. And so I'm grateful that you're here. Well, verse 4, Paul's going to go back to his... Paul's going to enter into his testimony now. All right, So that you can basically see this pretty clearly. 
Paul talks about who he was uh, growing up, who he was before Christ. Then he's going to talk about his encounter with Christ. He's going to talk about the charge that Christ laid down for him, his commission in Christ. And then he's going to talk about how he was obedient to that. And that ultimately he's standing trial today because of his obedience to the command that he received from Christ himself. So verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, and if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? So Paul's going back to his credentials, who he was, his heritage, his ethnicity, his training, his education, his status, his position there in Jerusalem. He was kind of a big deal. And he was a Pharisee. And this was a group of men, leaders. They were basically lay leaders and they were held in great esteem by the people. They were the the back-to-the-Bible guys originally. They saw the corruption that was happening in the land, uh, in the government, in in the temple. And they said, you know what? We're not cool with this. We're going to go back. Back to the basics and we're going to be serious. They were basically fundamentalists. But then we know that over time it became very corrupt and these Pharisees loved the praise of men and they loved the power and the status and they became really Jesus' biggest opponents. They became His adversaries. Jesus was a threat to them, a threat to their, their power and their prestige and they didn't like that so they just wanted to take Jesus out. Now Paul was a part of this group. Paul was a part of this group and he points back to that. And he refers to this hope. He says, I'm on trial today for this hope that we all have, referring to the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They taught that the Bible taught that there was a resurrection from the dead. And not everyone believed that, but the Pharisees certainly did. And so he said, "I'm I'm on trial for something that is commonly accepted, understood, and taught within Judaism. We all have this hope in the resurrection. And why should you think it's such a crazy thing that God could raise someone from the dead? And that's a really... Simple question, uh, honestly. Is there anything that's too hard for God? Does it sound crazy to you that God could raise someone from the dead? You know, I've heard it said, if you can get past verse 1 in Genesis, then everything else should fall right into place. You shouldn't have a hard time with, with the rest of the Bible. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And so if you believe that, if you trust that, then nothing else should seem too hard. There's nothing that's too hard for God. And Paul says, look, I'm on trial for the resurrection, but is it too hard to think that God could do such a thing? Now Paul's going to talk about how he was a persecutor of the church. Verse 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
So Paul looks back on his time as a, as a hater of the church, as a, as a persecutor, someone who went after the church with everything that he had, and he, he had them killed, tortured, hauled off to prison. He even compelled them to blaspheme. And so I'm sure many of us have seen movies or heard stories about people who would put a gun to someone's head and say, you need to reject Christ or I'll kill you or I'll kill your family or some horrific thing. Well, that was Paul. Can you believe that? I mean, that's so hard, I think, for us to, to grapple with. But that was Saul of Tarsus. He was fierce. And he was vicious. He was violent. And I think in some ways, Paul never really forgot this. I keep going back between Saul and Paul, for those of you who don't, who don't understand that. He was Saul of Tarsus, but his name was changed to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, and Paul was his uh, Roman name. He had, a Roman, he had kind of a dual citizenship, and so when he went off to the Gentiles, he started going by Paul. And so anyways, Paul never really got over this. You know, He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church. Now, what's interesting to me about this, so I think that we can all relate with this, regarding his testimony, I think that we can be very similar to Paul in that Paul was someone who had uh, great accomplishments in his life. He was somebody who had really attained to a position of power and prestige, highly educated, well-spoken of. He could trace his heritage way back, and that was a big deal in that, in that time, in that culture. And he was somebody... But at the same time, he had tremendous failures, things that he seemed to never really get over, tremendous regret. How many of us in here can relate with that? And he said, you know, I persecuted the church. You know, that, that really seemed to haunt him to a degree. But I think about Philippians, the book of Philippians. Paul says, you know, I'm pressing forward. I'm pressing towards this goal. And he said, I haven't attained. I haven't arrived. How many of us can relate to that? We haven't arrived, have we? And he said, but one thing I do, I forget those things that are behind me and I reach towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was going to pursue Christ no matter what. Some people can't get past the past. They can't get over the past because of their failures, because of their regrets, because of their mistakes, their shortcomings. They are trapped there. And I would say to you, that there is nothing that you have done that you can't be forgiven of. There is nothing that is too great for the greatness of God's grace and mercy. It's infinite. And there is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cover over. You understand that? To say that you don't understand how bad I am, you don't understand the things that I've done, is to say the cross is not that great. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice, but it won't work on this guy. That's ultimately what, what people are saying. The Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Some of us are stuck in the past because of our successes, because of things that we've accomplished. You can't get past the glory days, right? You're stuck back there. And Paul said, look, I had good things and bad things, but none of that holds me back. I'm looking forward. I'm looking into the future. You know, yesterday is gone and tomorrow, it's not certain. And ultimately, we keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord. But we don't, we don't stay back there. You know, it's a very simple illustration. I've heard it said, when you're driving in the car, you don't drive while looking in the rearview mirror. 
ultimately. You glance up there occasionally to kind of see what's behind you. And the same is true with us, guys. We don't want to forget where we came from. We don't want to forget what God has saved us out of. But we don't live there. We don't stay there. We don't drive a car by just looking in the rearview mirror the whole time. We don't forget where we, have, where we came from, but we're moving forward. Amen? And that was Paul. And that was Paul. Verse 12. So now as Paul was, was a persecutor of the church and he was on his way, verse 12, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So as Saul was on his way, he was on his way to persecute, he was struck down by a blinding light. We're told that the light was brighter than the sun. Can you imagine that? And this is Christ in His glory. The sun is dim. The sun grows dim next to the glorious light of Jesus. The Bible says that He dwells in unapproachable light. That is His purity. That is His majesty. That is His glory. And Paul was struck down by that. It's, it's One of the things I love about this is Paul was very busy on his way doing his thing. He was fighting against God and didn't even know it. And God in His graciousness stopped him in his tracks. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. In fact, Paul was doing everything in his power to fight against Jesus. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks. Praise God that He does that for us. You know? Um, the Bible says that we love Him because He first loved us. God demonstrated His love to us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God initiated this whole thing. There's nothing that's so lovely about us and there's nothing really in us that would go after God because the Bible teaches that we are dead in our trespass and sin and we're not seeking God. No one does good, no, not one. But God came after us. You understand that? God ran after us. And Jesus in His infinite grace and mercy intervened in Saul's life that day. And He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? And it's interesting, when you see Jesus use a name or a term twice, it's usually from a tone of um, compassion. Like He said, you know, Martha, Martha, you busy yourself with many things, but Mary has chosen the good thing and that won't be taken away from her. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, he wept and lamented over their rejection of him. And here he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that's really interesting because who was Saul persecuting after all? Ultimately, he was really he was coming after the church. But to come after Jesus' church is to come after him. That's how closely he identifies with his people. That's how loved you are. You are you are his. He is your Lord. And He is your King. He is my King, my Lord. And when something happens to us, it affects the Lord. 
He said, you're persecuting the church, but you're persecuting me. And he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And basically, a, a goad would have been a long pointy stick that a person that is uh, pushing a, a mule would prod the mule with it to keep it moving forward. And sometimes the, a rebellious mule would kick back against the, the prodding of the stick instead of moving forward. And that was basically what Jesus said Saul was doing. And how many of us can relate with that? I mean, years and years, I look back now and I can see so clearly how God was trying to draw me to Himself. God was putting people in my path to speak truth and love into my life and to try to point me to Him, and I was just kicking against it. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to hear that stuff. I didn't want to believe it. I rejected it. Until finally, God, He really got a hold of me. He put me in a place where I had nowhere else to turn. And He drew me to Himself in, in love and in, in mercy and kindness. Well, verse 16, here's the commission that Jesus lays upon Saul at this point. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things that I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you and to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Me. So there is so much happening in this paragraph right here. This is amazing. And he said, For this very reason I appeared to you. I came to you. Jesus had a, pur a purpose for Paul. He intervened in Paul's life because he had a plan for Paul. And that was one of the most wonderful things for me to realize is that God had a plan for me. It was not my plan, it was His plan. And His plan was so much better than anything I could have ever come, come up with. Honestly, I, I aimed really low when I look back and think on it, you know. And to see what God has done. And He had a, he had a, a purpose for Saul here. He intervened in his life. And I love how he says, you're going to be a witness of the things that you have seen and the things that I will reveal to you. And that is the case for the Christian. We come to the Lord and there are certain things that we understand to be truth, but the rest of our days we spend learning about God. He continues to reveal Himself to us because He's infinite. To be able to know Him in His fullness is simply impossible to the finite mind. And I think we'll spend all of eternity learning more about this glorious One, our God, our King. And he said, I'm going to... I thought this was really fascinating. Verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. So he's like, I'm going to deliver you from the people that I'm sending you to. And so he was going to be sent into a very harsh environment. He was going to be sent into a place where people were going to be angry. They were going to hate what he had to say. They were going to be antagonistic and they were going to attack him. And he said, I'm going to deliver you. What that tells me, it's not always roses. The Lord oftentimes will call us into difficult situations. But He will be with us. He will deliver us. He will walk with us through it. He will accomplish His, His purposes in our hearts and in our lives as we go through the hard times that He calls us into. And this is the message. This was the message. He said that you would... Now I send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are being sanctified in me. To have their eyes opened. Because the Bible teaches that we were blind. Spiritually blind. That's why we sing the song, I once was blind, but now I see. When the Bible talks about us being dead and our trespass and sins, that means we are, we are totally spiritually dead. We're alive physically, obviously, but we are absolutely not capable of knowing God, interacting with God, pleasing God, because we are dead in our trespass and sins. We have rebelled. We have rejected Him. We have done so many things that are not pleasing to Him. We have to give an account to Him because of that. But Jesus said, their eyes will be opened. You're going to go, their eyes are going to be opened. They're going to turn from darkness to light. From Satan to God. And that's what Christ came to do. When we talk about being born again, this is very important, guys. When we talk about being born again, in John chapter 3, when Jesus said that you must be born again, that means to be born from above. That means to have your eyes opened. That means the Holy Spirit will come within you, take up residence within you, and you come alive spiritually. And you can, you can meet with the Lord. You can hear His voice in His Word. And God will begin to change you and you can commune with the Lord. You have the Lord. That's one of the most beautiful things about all of this is the relationship that you enter into with Jesus. He is the treasure. He is the prize. Amen? And so he said their eyes are going to be open. They're going to turn from darkness, from ignorance, from wickedness that are come to the light. They're going to enter into a life of, of purity and a life of holiness, a life of love. They're going to be in the truth, no longer in darkness, no longer in ignorance, but now in the truth, in the light. No longer slaves to Satan, no longer bound by sin, but now they are going to be children of God. And so we have been transferred, conveyed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And now we've been given an inheritance. We've been given a place amongst the sanctified, the church, those people who have been called out of, the, out of the world and into the church. We have a place in that family. You understand that? If you're a Christian here today, you belong to a family. This is your family. We are your brothers and your sisters. We love you. We love each other. And if you're not in that, God desires you to be. We desire you to be. Jesus died for you so that you can be. So that your eyes can be opened. So that you can turn from darkness to light. So that you can be set free from the power of Satan and come into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, and so that you can find your place in the family, the body of Christ. And that is what Paul was to proclaim. Well, verse 19 Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer and that He would be the first <clears throat> excuse me, to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So Paul said, look, my message is consistent with that of the law and the prophets. 
And he said, I'm saying the same thing that they said, that the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus would come and He would suffer. And you do find that all throughout the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. We, we read of the suffering servant, the Messiah who would come to suffer for His people. And truly, Jesus did that. Jesus suffered for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer. You get that? We deserved punishment. We deserved to be separated from God because of who we were and the things that we have done as rebels to God because of the sinful nature that, that we have. That really is it's us. Well, Jesus suffered in our stead. Jesus took the penalty in our place. Jesus paid the debt that we owed. You get that? That's the Gospel. But then it says He would be the first to rise from the dead. When Jesus died in our place, He rose from the grave. That is the resurrection. And that why that is so important is because if Jesus truly was a sinner, if He had sinned in any way, then He would have died and that would have been it. But He was truly innocent. And God received the sacrifice and Jesus rose from the grave because He didn't owe anything to the grave. He didn't owe because He was sinlessly perfect. And so He died the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we could not live. So the, the just took the place of the unjust. He who was rich became poor in our place. And so He died in our stead. He rose from the grave. And He was the first to rise from the grave. Paul makes that point there. He was the first, and there will be many to follow. He's the first fruit among many brothers. Since He died and He rose again, we have the promise, we have the hope that we will too. And that's what baptism represents. We're going to be having a baptism service today, as I mentioned. And so that's exactly what that represents. Just as Christ died, He was buried. On the third day, He rose again from the grave. So we too, we identify with the death of Christ and we're lowered down into the waters of baptism which represent the grave and then we are brought back up into the newness of life and we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Paul takes up the same theme when he says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and now the life that I live, I live to the glory of God. Amen? And so that was what that's what baptism represents, and that ultimately, uh, that's what we see happen in the resurrection. And then he said Jesus would proclaim light. He would proclaim light, as I had already said, to those who are in darkness, to those who are lost in ignorance. And then he says this, that they must repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. So we turn away from the old life. We turn away from that sin that we used to love and cherish. The rebellion against God that we lived in. We forsake that. But we don't just stop what we used to do. Now we turn to God. And we put our trust in Him. And we love Him. We give our lives to Him. So we turn away from the old man and we turn to the new. We turn to Christ Jesus. We turn to God. And then it says we do works befitting repentance. That means that if you say you're a Christian... If you say you love Jesus, you ought to look like Him. You know, there are some people who bear no family resemblance to the one they call their father. You know, some people say, I'm a child of God. It's kind of hard to tell that by the way they talk, by the way they act. And ultimately, God knows the heart. We don't. But the Bible says that if you are in Christ, 
then your actions ought to look like that. It ought to follow. Now, get this. make sure we get this straight. I don't do good works so that I can have God's favor. I don't do good works so that I can be saved. You understand that? Because I am saved, because I am forgiven, because I have been born again, now I desire to do good works for the Lord. I desire to honor Him. I desire to please Him. I desire to live a life that glorifies Him because of what He has done. It's a result of what He has done. It's not so that I can get something from Him. It's because of what He has already done for me. Now my greatest desire is to serve Him, to love Him, to please Him, to share Him. Well, verse 24, Festus speaks up at this point. Now he, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. So Paul is accused of being crazy. I used to have a pastor that would say this to me all the time. And uh, he would say, Rob, you're crazy. Much learning is driving you mad. And it was kind of an ongoing joke that we had. Um, but yeah, Festus is just like, man, I don't know what this guy's talking about. This is nuts. And so he just kind of blurts that out in the middle of the, of the trial here. And Paul says, look, this is not, I'm not crazy. This is not crazy. What I'm saying to you is true and it's rational. It's rational, guys. I love that. You know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. There's a lot of crazy ideologies in the secular world and the scientific community. They look at us and they think we're crazy because we believe God created. We look at them, we think they're crazy because they think that this all just came from, you know, the, the whole Big Bang theory and everything that is in that. But the reality is this is all very rational. When you, when you really take the time to dig into this and to be an honest seeker and an honest student, it's not crazy. And there's a, a guy, Ravi Zacharias, you may know who he is, but the kind of the slogan for his ministry is, let my people think. Let my people think. And I love that because we ought to be thinkers. We need to take an honest look at these things and really be open to uh, whatever we find and, and ask God if you're real, if you're true, reveal yourself to me. And I want to understand these things and, and be willing to, to look, look into these things because I will say to you, it is truly rational. It's truth. It is the truth. All right. Well, verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So it seems like they didn't make any progress here. They still didn't have any, anything on him, and 
they still had to send him to Caesar, and they still don't really have a reason for it. He said, in fact, you know, if he hadn't appealed, appealed to Caesar, he could have been let go. But what I find here, it's, it's real tragic, is that Paul puts a grip on the spot. Festus kind of blurts out as he does, but he calls Agrippa to a decision. And he said, you almost persuade me, but he didn't. He stopped short. And there could be many reasons as to why he stopped short. Maybe uh, he didn't want to look a certain way in front of Festus. You know, Festus is a sharp guy. He's a, he's a real domineering type. And he's kind of mocking Paul here. He might feel like, man, I'd look like a fool if I were to say, okay, I believe this. Maybe he's thinking about Bernice sitting there beside, what will she think? You know, what, what would happen then if I were to do this? For whatever reason, he did not do it. He said, I almost believe. You know, and some translations say, in such a short time do you expect me to believe? And there's good reasoning for why it's kind of hard to, to interpret that phrase in the original language. But either way, it's tragic. Either way, one, he's saying, I almost believe, but no, I'm going to stop short. On the other end, he's saying, you know what? Not, not this quickly. I've got to think on this for a while. I'll get back to you later, which was really what Felix kept doing. And so I, my encouragement to us is don't do that. God is calling you today. God is drawing you to Himself. Don't reject that. Don't say, I'm almost there, but not quite. Don't do that. Today is the day. Put your trust in the Lord. Surrender your life to Him. Call upon Him to save you and to forgive you and to fill you with His Holy Spirit and to make you His own. Don't say, I need more time. Don't say, I need to think this through because we'll always put it off, put it off, put it off. And so there comes a point when you have to just make that jump. You have to say, I believe, I believe. And Agrippa didn't do this. But let that not be said of us. And you know, whatever the Lord might be speaking to you about in this room we're all in different places we all have different things going on and the lord has put his finger on things in our lives and i would say to you obey the lord surrender bow the knee do what he tells you to do respond respond it's the best thing that you could ever do i can never think of a single moment in my life where i thought i regretted doing what the lord has asked me to do Never, ever. I've regretted doing my own thing many times over. Many of us can relate with that, I'm sure. But don't be like Agrippa. Don't be like Festus. Don't be like Felix. It's so sad. Over and over and over, we keep seeing this, this pattern here. God was so gracious to these people to send Paul, the apostle, to preach the truth. How many times has God put people in our lives to speak truth and we reject it or we refuse it or we stop our ears up don't do that. If God is reaching out to you today, if God is speaking to you, if God is putting His finger on something, respond. Respond. Amen? We want to be people who say yes to the Lord. Yes! So let me just pray for us. Father, we love You. And we thank You, God, that You have spoken to us today by Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel. We love the Gospel. And it's not just for unbelievers, God. It's for believers. We need the Gospel all the time. We need to be reminded of the great love with which You've loved us and how You have paid for our sins. And they are gone. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And that we have acceptance 
with the Father, that we have His love and that we have His, His forgiveness because of what You have done in our place, O oh, Jesus. Truly, that is good news. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen.